welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good morning, everyone. Hey, welcome along to Gateway this morning. If you happen to be visiting with us, we do really extend to you a, a warm welcome. As you can see, it's a little bit different all around this morning. Uh, no band, me down on the stage, uh, our children's check-in collapsing, um, and all those things make, makes for an interesting life. So uh, I'm glad you're here to share it with us. Um, I started a series last week called uh, Small Groups That Change the World. And uh, I'm, I wasn't quite sure whether to title it that um, for a number of reasons. Firstly, I thought when I talk about small groups that change the world, people immediately think we're trying to enlist people for home groups um, and, and, and immediately think that way. And uh, others might imagine that small groups could never change the world and you're completely pretentious to think that that's possible. However, as I said last week, uh, and I'll probably use this quote a number of times through the series, Margaret Mead, the very famous cultural anthropologist, said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed people can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. And uh, if you think about it, or actually do some study on small groups of people that actually have impacted the world in significant ways, you'll know that she's right. Think Jesus and his 12 disciples who literally changed the world. And it can be for good of, or ill. Think of a small group of people, essentially two for a, for a start, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, who were to begin with the catalyst for communism. Uh, a, a theory or political impact, uh, the, uh, uh, idea that impacted and changed the world in a catastrophic way during the 20th century. Think Steve Jobs and a small group of creatives that have literally dramatically changed the world and the way that we interact with it. I think Margaret Mead is right. A small, thoughtful group of individuals are the only way the world has really ever changed. We talk about the idea of a creative minority, and I developed that whole idea because uh, this idea of a creative minority is really the basis of the series that to unfold over the next couple of weeks. And the idea of a creative minority was a, was a concept developed by a historian, Arnold Toynbee. And he defined a creative minority as a small group of people who proactively respond to a civilization's crisis and whose response allows that civilization to grow. John Tyson, an author who also writes on this whole idea of small groups of people that change the world, he says a creative minority seeks to function in a dominant culture for the purpose of being a redeeming factor within it. And then again last week I talked about the brilliant Jewish rabbi Jonathan Sachs who developed the thought of a creative minority and suggested that the Jewish people as a whole have functioned in the larger human community for thousands of years as a creative minority, as a phenomenal force. And we investigated that last week and saw that the Jewish people have dramatically impacted the way particularly we in the West think and feel. And then finally last week, what I did was I talked about the common characteristics. As people study these small groups that change the world, these creative minorities, there's some common denominators that, that 
is seen again and again. And I suggested six common denominators of these groups, and over the next few weeks, what I intend to do is explore some of them. We noted that small minorities, creative minorities, are committed to a particular narrative. They are covenantal communities. They are very creative and innovative. They are ethical communities. They live under a distinct sense of authority, and they have a profound sense of purpose as they relate to the wider dominant culture. Now, there are numerous illustrations and examples in history of God's people functioning as creative minorities. And again, last week I mentioned three of them. I talked about Daniel and his three friends in Babylon. Surrounded by an idolatrous, seductive culture, these young men determined that they would be a creative, redeeming force of Babylon directed by Jeremiah the prophet. We might have anticipated that Jeremiah had said something very, very different to these uh, exiles as he wrote to them. He'd been predicting the exile and said that if you don't repent, judgment is coming. The people didn't repent, judgment came, and when they were in exile, Jeremiah writes to them. If I was Jeremiah, I think I would have been a very short letter and it would have said, I told you so. Jeremiah counterintuitively tells them to be a creative minority in the midst of the dominant culture, and you can read that in Jeremiah 29. Live there, he says, prosper there, have children, marry, um, bless the community that you're in, and pray for it. And the Jewish people from that time have literally, as Rabbi Sachs said, been that kind of creative minority in the in the human community. So Daniel and his three friends are a, biblic, a, a brilliant biblical example of a creative minority. The Clapham sect or circle or saints, call them what you will, are also a magnificent illustration of how a small group can literally change the world. The Moravian community in Germany were a small group of people who significantly impacted the world. Now, I think most of you will be familiar at least with Daniel and his three friends. You'll know the story somewhat, and I suggested to you last week that perhaps you read the first six of uh, the book of Daniel to kind of familiarize yourself with the story. We will be looking at them throughout the series, and we will also be looking at the Clappamites and the Moravians throughout the series. Um, I, I figured that though most of you would know the story of Daniel, perhaps many of you would be not so familiar with the Clappamites or with the Moravians. So what I intend to do at least this morning is introduce you to, to one of those groups, I think just for the sake of time. Um, I need to apologize to those who from your school days are allergic to history and are probably liable to break out in hives along these lines. But um, we will get to the Bible, okay? But just so that you can understand this particular group, this morning I want to talk a little bit, especially about the uh, Clappamites. Now, the Moravians come first chronologically. They were a group of believers in Germany in the 1720s through the 1760s. You may have heard of their leader, a man by the name of Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Von Zinzendorf really was the rich young ruler who said yes, and uh, hopefully we'll talk a little bit about him as the series unfolds. But the Clapham Circle, or sect, or saints, as they have been variously called, they came a little later. They were in the 1790s through the 1830s. Um, they were found in England, okay? Um, 
someone asked, by the way, last week, you know, I mentioned these two groups, and they said, can we do a bit of reading on it? Could you recommend a couple of books? Um, and I could do that. Uh, I probably, if you want to read about the Clapham sect, and particularly William Wilberforce, who was probably the leading light, at least publicly, of that sect, um, Eric Metaxas's book, simply called Amazing Grace, would be worth the read. Uh, John Pollock also wrote a biography on Wilberforce, and whenever you're dealing with Wilberforce, you are dealing with the team that surrounded him, and that was the Clappermites. For the Moravians, if you're interested, you might like to read a book called Count Zinzendorf and the Spirit of the Moravians by Paul Vermer. So, the Clapham's, the Clappermites. Um, they were a largely a group of aristocratic evangelical Anglicans, by and large, both prominent publicly and, and wealthy. The group included members of parliaments, a brewer, a banker, clergymen, published authors. It was made up of both men and women. They weren't an organized group, as the name might imply. There were no membership lists. They were simply a group of friends, really, <clears throat> who shared a particular outlook that we might call evangelical activism. Wayne Kirkland said of them, the Clappermites were a rather organic and fluid group who counted themselves as orthodox, committed evangelical Anglicans with a passion for Christianity in action. And John Pollock says of them, at certain points these friends resided in homes in a suburb called Clapham Common. Their esprit de corps was so evident and contagious that wherever, that whether geographically together or not, they operated like a meeting that never adjourned. Now these guys never called themselves the Clapham Circle or the Clapham Saints. That was a name that was given to them sometime later, about 1844, by a guy called James Stevens. They didn't actually call themselves anything. We look back on Wilberforce and the Clappermite sect with a sense of them being absolute, absolutely heroic from a Christian perspective, but at the time they weren't seen anything like that. Much of society initially lampooned them, and the upper classes in England particularly saw them as potentially radical and dangerous. Now the reason for that was just across the channel, Europe was in an uproar, and the French Revolution uh, was starting to unfold. And as a result of the French Revolution, ideas concerning liberty and democracy weren't seen as innocent and beautiful. And to speak of human rights at this time was, as the Claphams found out in their case wrongfully, to be considered friends of the revolution and as a result of that, enemies of king and country. That suspicion, by the way, was heightened when Wilberforce was declared by the French, without Wilberforce's permission, to be an honorary citizen of France because of his services to liberty, equality, and fraternity. And Wilberforce was, of course, less than thrilled to have that honor bestowed on him. I'm sure you've heard of William Wilberforce. He was the Clapham's, in a way, center of gravity. He was born in 1759 to a wealthy merchant in Hull. His, his dad died when he was very young. His mum suffered from ill health. And as a result, William spent long periods of time in his early years with a much beloved uncle and aunt. Now, uncle and aunt were known in that time for their evangelical beliefs, and they were very good friends with a man by the name of George Whitfield. 
Now, I'm not sure if you've heard of that name, but Whitfield and two other gentlemen, John and Charles Wesley, were the catalysts in England for what became known as the Great Evangelical Revival in Great Britain and the Great Awakening in the US. They constantly went back and forwards by ship, of course. I think Whitfield went across like 30 times. And they were uh, fiercely evangelical, and incredible revival broke out wherever they went. Now, Wilberforce's aunt and uncle friends with them. Wilbur's aunt and uncle were also close friends with a man by the name of John Newton. John Newton was an ex-slave ship captain until a dramatic conversion turned his life around and he entered the uh, Anglican ministry. You'll probably know him best as the man who wrote the amazing uh, hymn, Amazing Grace. Um, Wilberforce was impacted greatly by this incredible environment and he developed a real sensitivity early on to the things of God. Now, his mum was much more formal, conservative, and less enthusiastic in her religious views, and she became, when she heard what was happening, very concerned that Wilbur was becoming a despised Methodist. So she arranged for him to be returned home uh, where she could hopefully dilute and, if possible, remove the extreme religious nonsense that she saw going on in his life. She managed pretty successfully to achieve those goals, and by the time Wilberforce graduated from Cambridge, he was a well-to-do man about town. Uh, He went into Parliament at age 21 and became the member for Hull. Uh, Interesting fact, he never lost a parliamentary election from age 21 to age 74, which is not a bad record. He apparently was a man of great charm. He had a brilliant wit, and he was a stirring, a very, very gifted speaker. Prime Minister and his great friend William Pitt said Wilberforce possessed the greatest natural eloquence of all the men that he had ever known. And many people predicted a very bright future for him in politics. He was pretty much guaranteed to be Prime Minister one day. By his early 20s, mid-20s, he'd, re- he'd reached a position of considerable power and eminence. He was welcome in the highest social circles, he was privy to cabinet secrets, and he was the closest friend to William Pitt, the Prime Minister. All in all, a very bright future with great possibilities and opportunities. <clears throat> 1785, at age 26, the height of his political career, something profound and dramatic happened to him. Now, when I say dramatic, I don't mean sudden. He had a dramatic conversion to the Christian faith. It wasn't a St. Paul-like moment of time. In fact, it was deep, long, drawn-out experience. He traveled on holiday uh, with to Europe with a, with a friend. And although he knew the friend was a clergyman, unbeknown to Wilberforce, he didn't know that he was a Christian. In those days, and unfortunately in ours too, one could be one without necessarily being the other. This man, Isaac Milner, was a physical giant and he had an intellect to match his phys- physique. He was a very big man and a very, very bright man. And they traveled for in those days was done by coach, and they traveled for hours, and as they traveled, they read and discussed a book that Milner had brought along, a book by Philip Dotteridge called The Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul. And Wilberforce said, so effective prick was I by these enchanted discussions that I determined that I would examine the scriptures for myself. 
And he did, and he went through what he called a season of great change, and he became soundly converted to Christ. As a result of that conversion, he began to see the world very, very differently. He saw things that he'd never seen before, things that you and I absolutely take for granted and, um, and, and, and wonder how anybody could not. But in that time, they were to his world as slavery is to ours. He saw an created, in fact, equal, and that they were made in the image of God. He understood that, in some sense, we are all brothers, and that we are our brother's keeper. And he saw that we must love our neighbor as ourselves, and that we must do to them as we would have them do to us. Now, today, as I say, we refer to that as having a social conscience, and we can't imagine a modern, civilized society without one. But it wasn't like that in England in the 1700s, or anywhere else in the world, for that matter. England at that time was, um, was, was pretty depressed. If, if you're a, a literature fan and you've read anything of Charles Dickens, some of his descriptions of London will give you a really good idea of what Wilberforce's life was like. They were contemporaries, although Dickens was slightly younger than Wilberforce. One description that Dickens gives of London at the time conveys the idea of, this, of the, the circumstances of the time. He said, the homes of the upper and middle class exist in close proximity to areas of unbelievable poverty and filth. Rich and poor alike are thrown together in the crowded city streets. Street sweepers attempt to keep the streets clean of manure, the result of thousands of horse-drawn vehicles. The city's thousands of chimney pots are belching coal smoke, resulting in soot, which seems to settle everywhere. In many parts of the city, raw sewage flows into the gutters that empty into the Thames. Street vendors hawking their wares add to the cacophony of street noises. Pickpockets, prostitutes, drunks, beggars, and vagabonds of every description add to the colourful colorful multitude. Life in that time was short and often brutal. After his great change, Wilberforce thought seriously about leaving politics. He wondered if he actually had felt a call to ministry. So he went to see his lifelong friend, John Newton, the clergyman. And thank God, Newton was wise enough to counsel Wilberforce to remain where he was and leverage his influence and position for godly goals. And Newton later commented on this meeting that he had with Wilberforce saying, I hope the Lord will make him a blessing both as a Christian and as a statesman. How seldom do these characters coincide? but they are not incompatible. The great change that Wilberforce went through immediately affected two areas of his life significantly, his money and his time. Up until that time, he'd reckoned them both as his own to do with them as he saw fit. After his conversion, he knew that not to be so. And he determined and wrote in his diary, by careful management, I should be able to give a quarter of my income to the poor, and he did. In one year, his financial records show that he actually gave away 3,000 pounds more than he earned. He was incredibly generous. By aged, sorry, in 1787, by age 28, he famously recorded in his diary that God Almighty has set before me two great objectives, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Now, we understand the slave trade, but the phrase, the reformation of manners, kind of doesn't 
compute in our English sounds kind of quaint as if he's suggesting that he'll try and improve the table manners or get the guys to open doors for the ladies. But he's not talking about that. He's talking about spiritual and moral change. Wilberforce became at this time, in some senses, a lightning rod for other people who evil of the slave trade and were deeply committed to the removal of this evil from England's conscience. You might have heard some of the names, Granville Sharp, Thomas Clarkson, James Stephen, Henry Thornton, uh, Henry and John Venn, Hannah Moore. There were many others, but they gravitated to Wilberforce. They congregated in a suburb called, uh, uh, in South London called Clapham, where the Venns pastored a church. Some of you um, will, will know Donald and Janaya Goodhall have gone to Auckland to work with the Venn Foundation. That foundation draws its name from, this, from, the, from these people. Uh, the, the Venns pastored the church that the Claphamites went to, and they became that small group that changed the world, literally. Several of them lived in a house called Battersea Rise, where it is said they met together, prayed, studied, and to do good. In 1787, Wilberforce gave notice to the House of Commons that he would introduce a motion for the abolition of the slave trade. Now, you've got to understand that kind of motion at this time was almost laughable. The financial benefits of the slave trade to the traders, the shipping merchants, and the British economy in general was considerable. And both politicians and public could not have even conceived of how life could go on without the slave trade. And the reasons weren't just economic, as considerable as they were, they were also political. And it was argued that if the, that if the British stepped out of the slave trade, then their mortal enemies, the French and the Spanish, would simply step into the vacuum and they would increase their wealth at Britain's expense. They also abolished the slave trade. The West Indian islands might well use the opportunity to declare independence from Britain as the Americans had done previously. So a huge uphill battle to even get some kind of traction on this motion to abolish the trade. But Wilberforce and his companions were undaunted and for 20 years, through the discouragement and opposition, they pushed forward. Anti-slavery bills of one sort or another would be defeated in Parliament for 11 consecutive years. The opposition to Clapham and Wilberforce was intense and at times vehement. Prominent members of British society, King and his sons, Lord Nelson, the famous British war hero, they all came out publicly against abolition and against Wilberforce. He was lampooned, his life was threatened, rumours were spread concerning his character. It was said that he was cruel and that he beat his wife. Luckily for his wife, he was actually a bachelor at the time. He became estranged in terms of friendships, but as I say, absolutely undaunted, they pushed forward believing that their cause was just and right. And Wilberforce commented, I confess to you so enormous, so dreadful, so irredeemable did its wickedness appear that my own mind was completely made up for abolition. Let the consequences be what they would. I am determined that I would never rest until I had effected its abolition. One of the things that he was absolutely brilliant at he, is he did not ever 
demonize his opposition. Had opportunity to, could have done, might well have done given the nature of slavery, but he never did. He never pointed an accusing finger at those in the trade or its supporters. And many times would say, I mean not to accuse anyone, but to take the shame upon myself. We are all guilty. And the Clappermites, this small group of deeply committed thoughtful people, as Margaret Mead would call them, tirelessly labored for 20 years. Slowly, almost at a glacial pace at first, the public opinion began to shift. They did accurate, fair research that engaged with slaves, ship owners, and sailors, and were able to build a very accurate picture of the absolute horrors of this wicked trade. Wilberforce used his considerable eloquence to prick the conscience of the fellow parliamentarians and of the British public. They were incredibly innovative for their time, and they listed some some significant creatives to come on board for their cause. Hymn writer William Cowper wrote poetry, very famous one called The Negro's Complaint. Samuel Taylor Coleridge, some of you remember from your English lessons. Um, he wrote Ode to the Slave, uh, Ode Against the Slave Trade. In a stroke of genius, they enlisted the famous potter Josiah Wedgwood and persuaded him to bring his considerable artistry to the cause. And he created an image, probably the first iconic image ever used in a human rights campaign. A kneeling African man, hands and feet changed, looking up and imploringly asking, am I not a man and a brother? And they reproduced that image on pottery, crockery, snuff brooches, cameo brooches that the woman would wear, even letter sealers so that the image would appear on letters that were sealed with wax. And slowly the tide of public opinion began to turn. Parliament, of course, dragged its feet and Wilberforce faced discouragement after discouragement. Fearing that he might give up, John Wesley, who by that stage was 87, wrote to Wilberforce. This letter was written just days before he died, perhaps the last letter that Wesley ever wrote, and he said, Dear Sir, unless the divine power has raised you up to be Anathasius Contramundus, I won't explain that, it just means Anathasius against the world, and if you know anything about church history, you'll know what he was talking about. If you don't, don't worry. He said, I see not how you can go through this glorious enterprise in opposing that execrable villainy that is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? Or be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. Reading this morning a tract wrote by a poor African, I was particularly struck by the circumstance that a man who has a black skin being wronged or outraged by a white man can have no redress, it being a law in our colonies that the oath of a black man against a white man goes for nothing. What villainy is this? That he who has guided you from youth up may continue to strengthen you in this and all things is the prayer of, dear sir, your affectionate servant, John Wesley. Slowly, slowly, public opinion began to turn and Parliament faced the inevitable. The slave trade was on its way out. 
It was suggested by parliamentarians that the slave trade should be reduced and slowly, gradually removed. Wilberforce knew that gradually was a ruse for never, or as long as it can possibly be avoided and delayed. So he protested vehemently against these delaying tactics. Finally, in 1807, 20 years after the motion was put to the House, abolition won the day. The vote was 283 for and 16 against. And as the vote passed, Wilberforce sat, head in hands, and wept. One report of the moment read, almost simultaneously, every member of the chamber lost his composure and was carried away by a flood of emotion. They rose and deafening cheers and applause rang out for Wilberforce. When he finally gathered himself together, he looked over at his dear friend, Henry Thornton, and said, so Henry, what will you now? <laughs> However, that was only phase one of the battle over the slave trade, because the morning after the abolition bill passed, 500,000 human beings remained in slavery. All that had happened was the banning of the trade backwards and forwards from Africa to America. It wasn't about the emancipation of the slaves. Slavery remained alive and thriving. So phase two for this incredible group of people, the Clappermites, was the battle for emancipation for all who presently remained in slavery. And it took another 26 years. Another 26 years of effort from Wilberforce and the Clappermites. Finally, on Friday, the 26th of July in 1833, Parliament passed a bill emancipating all existing slaves and abolished slavery in every form in the British, in the British Empire. Three days later, July 29th, William Wilberforce died. It was the termination of his labor against slavery and the termination of his life. Sorry, I've been reading so much about this. I'm into the story, eh? These guys were incredible. These men and women, thoughtful, committed, devoted to Jesus, and determined to change the world. They did more than abolish slavery, as considerable as that was. Remember Wilberforce said that he wanted to abolish slavery and he was committed to the reformation of manners. Spiritual and moral reformation was what they aimed at. Between 1780 and 1844, that creative minority founded at least 223 national, religious, moral, education, and philanthropic institutions and societies. They just were tireless in terms of their determination to change their world. And the list and names of the society are comically long. Let me, let me just give you a handful of them, by which time I think you will be very, very grateful for names like World Vision and Tear Fund. Okay? Here they go. The Asylum for the, the Support and Encouragement of Deaf and Dumb Children of the Poor. The Society for the Bettering of Conditions and Increasing the Comforts of the Poor. The Institution for the Relief of the Poor of the City of London and Parts Adjacent. The Society for the Relief of the Industrious Poor. The British National Endeavour for Orphans of Soldiers and Sailors. The Asylum House of Refuge for the Reception of Orphan Girls, the Settlement of Whose Parents Cannot Be Found. 
the Institute for the Protection of Young Girls, and my personal favorite, Friendly Female Society for the Relief of the Poor, Infirmed, Aged Widows, and Single Women of Good Character Who Have Seen Better Days. It's a little easier to say I'm the CEO of Tear Fund than to say I am the president of the Friendly Female Society for the Relief of the Poor, Infirmed Age Widows, Single Women of Good Character Who Have Seen Better Days. Thank God for World Vision, eh? In addition to those societies, Wilberforce was involved in the British Foreign Bible Society, the Church Missionary Society, and the Society for the Better Observance of Sunday. He labored for the alleviation of child labor conditions. He was largely responsible for the banning of children being used as, uh, for sw ch sweeping chimneys, you know, pushed up chimneys. He worked for the agricultural reform that supplied affordable food for the poor, for prison reform. He worked with the Quaker Elizabeth Fry for the restriction of capital punishment and even for the prevention of, the cruel of cruelty to animals. I think I finished last week with the story that he was walking up the street one day and he saw a man beating the daylights out of his horse that was trying to pull a large, uh, a large weight up the street. And Wilberforce went over and said, excuse me, man, stop it. And the man turned as if to whack Wilberforce, you know, get out of my business. And he said, oh, Mr. Wilberforce, it's you. I promise I will never beat my horse again ever all of my life. He, he was regarded so highly throughout, throughout Britain. Reading this man's life is exhausting. The things that he was determined to see changed. I felt deeply moved, as you can probably tell, by the passivity that so often marks us as Western Christians, where we see the world that needs to be changed, but decide we would rather watch TV, we would rather play uh, games, we would rather do something different than set ourselves to be determined to be change agents. Some of you might be cynically tempted to say to me, Don, you do realize that slavery still exists, and in fact, that there are more slaves in our world today than there, were, than there was in Wilberforce's day, and, and of course, you are, you are right. So the question, how successful, in fact, was he? What you have to understand, though, is that Wilberforce and the Clappermites vanquish something even more fundamental than the institution of slavery. It's perhaps hard for us to appreciate, but they vanquished the mindset that even made slavery acceptable and allowed it to thrive. They destroyed an entire way of seeing the world and viewing people that had existed literally from the beginning of time. The old manner of seeing the world never questioned the right to have slaves. It was simply assumed. As a result of the efforts of this group of people, the Clappermites and Wilberforce, slavery is at least today universally regarded as evil, even though it is still practiced. In that day, it wasn't considered evil. They changed that. Actually, some friends of mine were in the service last Sunday when I started this, and uh, they emailed me during the week about uh, some things, and they said, Do you, did you realize, Don, that the Clappermites have a deep and profound connection with New Zealand? And I didn't. And so I did the research that they suggested I did. Let me finish this morning by telling you about it. The establishment of New Zealand as a British colony and the associated development of the treaty between Crown and Māori occurred under the direction of the British Colonial Office headed 
at the time by a man called Sir James Stephen. He was the son of Clappermite James Stephen, one of the architects of the Slave Trade Act, which finally abolished slavery. Like his dad, Sir James was a trained lawyer and he was passionate about charting a new way of relating to indigenous peoples, one that recognized their rights and looked to develop a mutually beneficial partnership. His wife, Jane, was the daughter of John Venn, the Clappermite. The cabinet minister in charge of the colonial office between 1835 and 1839 was Charles Grant, a son of one of the Clappermites. And these men labored to make the transition of, of British colonists coming into New Zealand seamless in terms of relationship with Māori. They were real irritants to men like Edward Gibbon Wakefield and the New Zealand Company, who were completely unconcerned about indigenous peoples and were concerned simply with making money out of the colonization of New Zealand. These men, deeply committed Christians from the Clappermite sect, determined that, and I quote, all dealings with the natives for their lands must be, must be conducted on the same principles of sincerity, justice, and good faith as must govern your transactions with them. They must not be permitted to enter into any contracts in which they might be the ignorant and unintentional of injuries to themselves. You will not, for example, purchase from the retention of which by them be essential or highly conducive to their own comfort, safety, or subsistence. The acquisition of land by the Crown for the future settlement of British subjects must be confined to such districts as the natives can alienate without distress or serious inconvenience to themselves. And one would want to say, if only succeeding British and New Zealand officials had honoured those commitments. Most of the missionaries that you will have heard of from early New Zealand history, names like Samuel Marsden, Henry and Marianne Williams, Octavius Hadfield, they were all church missionary society missionaries. They learned the language, they translated the Bible, they gained the respect of many chiefs, they acted as advocates for Māori, encouraging them to tr sign the treaty that they see sincerely believe would give them protection from the more corrosive elements of European contact and settlement. And the Clappermites were significantly responsible for the establishment of CMS that these missionaries all worked under. The legacy of this small group of committed, thoughtful people is absolutely astounding. Margaret Mead was right, a small group that changed the world. Friends, we can read history, we can be deeply moved by history, all of those things might be pleasant and good, but the challenge to you and me is can we change our world? Can we be the kind of thoughtful, committed people who start to bring change to our world? And, and I'm not just talking about the world. I'm talking about our world. Your family, the place where you live, the class that you're in, the university that you attend, the hospital that you work in. Is it possible that a small group of thoughtful, committed people can start to bring light into the darkness in those, in those places? And my answer is an unequivocal yes, it must be so. If you've got a heart for it, if you've got a passion for it. The characteristics of those groups, committed to a narrative, ethical, innovative, 
those I mentioned at the beginning. It seems that when you've got a group that changes the world, these things come up again and again and again. And in this series, I want to explore those. I don't want to just say to you, hey, go and change your world. It seems that there are ways of living that are conducive to being agents of change, and those are the things that I want to explore in in this series. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.